إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد Today then we move on to the chapter Bab Ma Ja'a Fi'l-Dhabh The chapter regarding that which has been mentioned regarding slaughtering, sacrificing for other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we'll begin with the reading then. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم قال شيخ الإسلام محمد بن عبد الوهاب رحمه الله تعالى باب ما جاء في الذبح لغير الله وقول الله تعالى قل إن صلاتي ونسكي ومحياي ومماتي لله رب العالمين لا شريك له الآية وقوله فصل لربك وانحر عن علي رضي الله عنه قال حدثني رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم بأربع كلمات لعن الله من ذبح لغير الله لعن الله من لعن والديه لعن الله من آوى محدثا لعن الله من غير منار الأرض أواه مسلم وعن طارق بن شهاب أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال دخل الجنة رجل في ذباب ودخل النار رجل في ذباب قالوا وكيف ذلك يا رسول الله قال مر رجلان على قوم لهم صنم لا يجوزه أحد حتى يقرب له شيئا قالوا فقالوا لأحدهما قرب قال ليس عندي شيء أقرب قالوا له قرب ولو ذبابا فقرب ذبابا فقلوا سبيله فدخل النار وقالوا للآخر قرب قال ما كنت, ما كنت لأقرب لأحد شيئا دون الله عز وجل فضربوا عنقه فدخل الجنة رواه أحمد So this chapter then, it is a continuation of what we have been discussing previously. As Shaykh Al-Fawzan says here, هذا الباب كالأبواب التي قبله في بيان أنواع من الشرك التي يمارسها بعض الناس في مختلف الأزمان. That this chapter, just like the chapters that came before it, is clarifying and discussing types of shirk which some of the people have practiced in different times. مِنْ عَهْدِ الْجَاهِلِيَّةِ وَلَا تَزَالْ مُسْتَمِرَّةِ From the times of pre-Islamic ignorance, and up until this day, some of these practices are still going on. So this chapter is going to touch upon another one of these practices that some of the people of ignorance perform, and that is the issue of sacrificing and slaughtering. With regards to sacrificing and slaughtering, 
you could say as a general background that sacrificing or slaughtering it is in one respect an act that is customary in one angle and one perspective slaughtering something is a traditional and customary act that a person may do to host his guests for example you slaughter something you slaughter a sheep and cook that in order to serve your guests a customary act a traditional act but then there are forms of this slaughtering that obviously fall into the realms of direct connection to worship even the customary one obviously it is deemed as an act of worship a person slaughters that in the name of allah accurately and properly in accordance to the sunnah to serve his guests but then in specific there are certain actions associated to this slaughtering where this slaughtering is considered specifically as an act of worship when you consider slaughtering sacrificing specifically within the realms of it being an act of worship then you could say that there are different types that the people engage in there is the legislated type of slaughtering and sacrificing that a person does in the name of Allah properly in accordance to the sunnah that's one then there is the bid'i type of sacrificing that some people may engage in for example a person sacrifices for the sake of Allah properly but specifies for example that he's going to go and do this sacrifice at the grave of such and such a wali for the sake of Allah he's not committing shirk i.e. for the dead person or anything but he just believes there's some superiority to doing it next to the grave of the wali doing it for the sake of Allah in the name of Allah but at the location of the grave of this wali then that would be a bid'ah no doubt and then there would be the shirki type of sacrificing and that is outright when the individual is doing it for the sake of other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so this chapter is going to touch upon this topic the topic of sacrificing and slaughtering and that this is an act of worship which must therefore be done for the sake of Allah and that those who do this act for other than the sake of Allah then it is deemed as a form of shirk so the first evidence that is mentioned in this chapter قُلْ إِنَّ صَلَاتِي وَنُسُكِي وَمَحْيَايَ وَمَمَاتِي لِلَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ لَا شَرِيكَ لَهِ Say that my prayer 
and my sacrificing and my living and my dying are for Allah, the Lord of all of that which exists. And he has no partners to him. This ayah, along with the other ayat that go with it, or the rest of the ayah that goes with it, وَبِذَٰلِكَ أُمِرْتُ وَأَنَا أَوَّلُ الْمُسْلِمِينَ That is what I have been commanded with, meaning to make my prayer, my worship, my sacrifice, my living, my dying for the sake of Allah. That is what I have been commanded with, and I am the first of the Muslims. قُلْ أَغَيْرَ اللَّهِ أَبْغِي رَبَّا وَهُوَ رَبُّ كُلِّ شَيْءٍ Say, should I seek a God besides Allah? Should I seek besides Allah as a Lord? And He is the Lord of everything. وَلَا تَكْسِبُ كُلُّ نَفْسٍ إِلَّا عَلَيْهَا وَلَا تَزِرُ وَازِرَةٌ وِزْرَ أُخْرَى And no soul does anything or performs any action except for its own accountability. What you do, you are accountable upon yourself for it. And nobody will take the accountability of another upon himself. وَلَا تَزِرُ وَازِرَةٌ وِزْرَ أُخْرَى الشيخ الفوزان, he says, خَتَمَ اللَّهُ هَذِهِ السُّورَةِ العظيمة بهذه الآيات لأن السورة تدور كلها على التوحيد وبيان الشرك وبيان ما يفعله المشركون مع الأصنام وما حرموه من المزارع والأنعام لأصنامهم وختمها سبحانه وتعالى بالبراءة من كل ما يفعله المشركون وهذا الغالب على الصور المكية فالصور المكية غالبها بل تكاد تكون كلها في التوحيد والنهي عن الشرك لأن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم مكث في مكة ثلاثة عشر وثلاث عشرة سنة يدعو إلى التوحيد وينهى عن الشرك وينزل عليه القرآن في ذلك ومن جملة ما نزل عليه في مكة هذه السورة العظيمة سورة الانعام الشيخ الفوزان talks about these ayat the first ayah which has been mentioned as an evidence and the other ayat of that chapter of the Quran سورة الانعام and he mentions that the majority of this chapter and in fact the majority if not almost all of the chapters that were revealed in Mecca, their subject matter is Tawheed. As you know the Quran was revealed over 23 years. So some of that revelation occurred when the Prophet ﷺ was still in Mecca, 
and some of it was revealed after he had made the hijrah to Medina. So the portions of the Qur'an that were revealed in the early times when the Prophet ﷺ was still in Mecca, those portions of the Qur'an, those chapters, those surahs, as Shaykh Al-Fawzan mentions here, almost all of their content is about Tawheed. The obligation to be upon Tawheed and the forbiddance from shirk. Those 13 years when the Prophet ﷺ was in Mecca and the Qur'an was being revealed to him, those early chapters of the Qur'an, the Meccan chapters of the Qur'an, they are almost exclusively on the topic of Tawheed. Then, the chapters of the Qur'an that were revealed after the Hijrah, after the Prophet ﷺ went to Medina, that's where you find the ayat about the other topics, about the other rulings, about hajj and fasting and other affairs, those types of ayat, those types of surahs, they were revealed afterwards in Medina. So if you were to examine, for example, Tafsir Ibn Kathir, or any one of the books of Tafsir, where they tell you at the beginning of each Tafsir part, every chapter, they tell you whether this particular surah was revealed in Mecca or whether this surah was revealed in Medina. Whether this surah is Makki or if it is Madani. If you examine all of the ones that are Makki, the ones that were revealed in Mecca, and you read them, you'll see that the majority, if not almost all of those chapters, are focused purely on Tawheed. Then if you go to the ones that are revealed in Medina, the Madani chapters, that's where you will see all of the other rulings and the fiqh and the ahkam regarding the various affairs of women and, and, and fasting and hajj and all of the various matters of fiqh as we call it now. They are revealed in the Madani sections. And that's because in the early years of the da'wah, the years of Mecca, the focus was, of course, to purify the hearts of the people from the shirk that they had been upon before into the purity of Tawheed. So the early years, the chapters were all about that affair of Tawheed and shirk, about the obligation of singling out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with your worship and abandoning all others besides Allah. As the scholars they say, and we've mentioned before many a time, that you must cleanse something out first before you can adorn it and beautify it. The example the scholars give is, if you want a drink of water and you go to the kitchen but the cup is dirty, what's the first thing you're going to do? Wash the cup, then you're going to put your water in it and drink it. So the cleansing of the cup occurs first, then the clean water is put into it afterwards. 
That's what they mean in terms of the da'wah at-takhliyah, qabla tahliyah. That the cleansing of their hearts occurred first by removing all of that shirk that they used to be upon and the ideas they used to be upon. And then adorning those hearts with tawheed. So all of those chapters that you see were revealed in Mecca. You will notice that their topic revolves around tawheed. And that is not to say that the Madani chapters, their topic does not revolve around Tawheed. Certainly not. All of the chapters of the Qur'an revolve around Tawheed. In fact, Ibn al-Qayyim mentioned, if you really ponder over the Qur'an, then every single ayah of the Qur'an, you will find within it the topic of Tawheed. If you ponder over the Qur'an, every single ayah of the Qur'an, then you will notice and you will realize it is directly connected to the Tawheed of Allah. Even the ayat that talk about uh, marital issues and they talk about divorce and they talk about those matters, even those ayat at the ends of them they finish with names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَلِيمًا حَكِيمًا غَفُورًا رَحِيمًا All of the different names of Allah at the end of the ayat, even when the topic of them is about whatever issues that are being discussed, then the names and attributes of Allah are mentioned within everywhere. So every ayah of the Qur'an in reality is about the tawheed of Allah. So Shaykh Al-Fawzan just highlights this to begin with regarding this first ayah. Then to discuss the details of the ayah itself, at the beginning it says, قُلْ إِنَّ صَلَاتِي Say, this the scholars of tafsir mention is an evidence that the Qur'an was not written by Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Some of the scholars of tafsir have mentioned as a refutation and rebuke against those individuals who claim, the kuffar and their likes, who claim that this Qur'an was just written by Muhammad himself. Rather, the scholars of tafsir, the mufassirun have said, this is a dalil that Muhammad did not write the Qur'an. Because in the ayat it says, قُلْ And who is that addressing? Say. And then the ayah mentions the affairs. Who is it addressing when it says, say? Muhammad wasallam. Say, O Muhammad. It is addressing the messenger. And so they said, if Muhammad wasallam wrote the Qur'an himself, he would not be addressing himself and telling himself, say, you do not do that to yourself. So in the beginning of this ayah, قُلْ وَهَذَا أَمْرٌ مِّنَ اللَّهِ جَلَّ وَعَلَىٰ لِنَبِيِّهِ مُحَمَّدِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ أَنْ يُعْلِنَ لِلنَّاسِ لَيْسَ لِنَاسِ وَقْتِهِ فَقَطْ بَلْ لِلنَّاسِ جَمِيعًا إِلَىٰ أَنْ تَقُومَ السَّاعَةِ وَلَيْسَ لِنَاسِ بَلَدِهِ بَلْ لِنَاسِ الْعَالَمِ That Allah says, 
Say, O Muhammad, and that is a command from Allah to the Messenger to announce and say this to all of the people, not only to the people of his time, but to all of the people to announce this and say this as a ruling and as an affair applicable to all of the people till the establishment of the hour and not only for the people of his land but to the people of the world and that's why the scholars they mention in usul al-tafsir when you have an ayah that is revealed for a particular purpose that does not mean that the ayah is therefore restricted to only that purpose the ayah may have been revealed with a certain backstory to it and a certain reason for that revelation. But that doesn't mean that the ayah is therefore restricted to only that and to only those people. It's like even Surah Al-Ikhlas. Qul Allahu Ahad, Allahu Samad. Everybody knows. Why was that revealed? They say in the Asbab Al-Nuzul that the Mushrikun, they were challenging the Prophet ﷺ. And they were saying to him, Your Lord, Allah that you speak of, who is he? Describe him to us. Who is this Lord of yours? Who is Allah? Describe him to us. They were challenging the Messenger, challenging him, telling him, Sif lana rabbak. Describe to us who your Lord is. And so then Allah revealed, Al-Ikhlas, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدْ اللَّهُ الصَّمَدْ لَمْ يَلِدْ وَلَمْ يُولَدْ وَلَمْ يَكُلْ لَهُ كُهُوًا أَحَدْ That was the description of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there was a specific reason why that was revealed. But that does not mean that the ayah is therefore restricted to that one incident. The ayah is general and applicable to all scenarios. And so that's what they say, even if an ayah is mentioned in a specific situation or circumstance, it does not restrict it to only that circumstance. So here the shaykh says, when Allah tells the messenger, say, he is obviously going to say it to who? To the people there. But does that mean that this ayah was restricted to only the Quraysh and the Arabs at that time there? Not at all. What the messenger is told to say here is applicable openly to all of mankind till the day of judgment. Even though at that time, he would have said this to a certain specific group of people, the Quraysh at that particular time. So it is not restricted. It is open to all and everyone till the establishment of the hour. So what is the messenger told to say? قُلْ إِنَّ صَلَاتِي Say that indeed my salah and as-salah specifically, Islamically speaking, is a particular act of worship that has within it particular statements and actions that starts with the takbiratul ihram and ends with the taslim. 
starts with Allahu Akbar, ends with Assalamu Alaikum. And then within that, you do certain actions and certain statements, specific actions and statements, which cannot be substituted for other things. It's like as Shaykh Al-Thaymeen said, nobody can come along and say, I'm going to pray, but I'm going to today start my prayer with, Subhanallah. Has he started his prayer? Is he praying? No. Somebody comes and says, I'm going to start my prayer today with, Alhamdulillah. Cannot? That is not prayer. He must begin with the specific statement, Allahu Akbar. And then when he's standing, he cannot just recite any part of the Quran. He must recite Al-Fatiha. So the prayer is an act of worship that has specific statements and specific actions. The Ruku', the Sujood, the various parts of the prayer. That is the act of worship of As-Salah. And one of the meanings of the word As-Salah, one of them, is from the word Sulah, which means a connection. So the scholars say the Salah is a connection between the servant and his Lord. It is a connection between the servant and his Lord. And we know that when a servant recites the Fatiha, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responds to that servant reciting the Fatiha. So firstly, قُلْ إِنَّ صَلَاتِي Say that my prayer, وَنُسُكِي Nusuk in the general sense of the word means ibadah. Nusuk in the general sense of the word means any ibadah, any worship. Nusuk, it can be used to mean al-ibadat, generally any form of worship, any type of worship. But in this ayah, it is being used for a specific meaning and a specific worship. And that is the worship of sacrificing, the worship of the slaughtering of a dhabh. So, وَنُسُكِ أَنُسُكُ الْمُرَادُ بِهِ مَا يُذْبَحُ مِنْ بَهِيمَةِ الْأَنْعَامِ عَلَى وَجْهِ التَّقَرُّبِ وَالْعِبَادَةِ what is intended here in this ayah is something that is slaughtered from the animals that are slaughtered upon seeking closeness to Allah as an act of worship. Slaughtering of an animal upon seeking closeness to Allah as an act of worship. And there are many examples of that. When someone has a newborn, you do what is known as the the aqiqah, the slaughtering for the newborn. You do the slaughtering on the day of Eid, the udhiyah. There are various forms of the sacrificing and slaughtering that are mentioned within the sunnah that a person can do. So, وَكَانَ الذَّبْحُ عَلَى وَجْهِ التَّقَرُّبِ مَوْجُودًا فِي الْجَاهِلِيَّةِ Sacrificing something upon the intention of seeking closeness 
That was an act which existed in Jahiliyyah. They used to sacrifice and slaughter with the intention that by doing this, they are going to seek closeness. But how were they doing it? They would sacrifice and slaughter, seeking closeness via this act to their idols and their statues and to the jinn and to the stars and to others besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. فالنبي صلى الله عليه وسلم بيّن أن دينه مخالف لدين المشركين فالمشركون يذبحون لغير الله والنبي صلى الله عليه وسلم ومن اتبعه يذبحون لله وحده لا شريك له So here then the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم was given this revelation and told to announce this in order to rebuke and rebut the actions of shirk that they used to be upon in regards to sacrificing and slaughtering. They, the mushrikun, used to sacrifice their animals, etc., seeking closeness to their idols and their statues and to the jinn and to the stars and to the dead in the graves and whatever it may be. So the messenger was told, announced to them, inna salati wa nusuki, that my prayer and my sacrificing are only for Allah. To highlight to them the reality of tawheed, and to rebuke them for their practices in sacrificing and slaughtering to others besides Allah. وَقَرْنُ النُّسُكِ بِالصَّلَةِ يَدُلُّ عَلَىٰ أَنَّهُ عِبَادَةِ عَظِيمَةِ Also, this is not something which is minor. This issue of slaughtering for others besides Allah it is a significant and serious issue. And sacrificing for the sake of Allah is a significant and tremendous act of worship. How do we know that? Because in this ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has joined the action, the worship of sacrificing along with the worship of prayer. And we already know the virtue and the status of the prayer. The second highest pillar from all of the pillars of Islam, the first physical act of worship that you will be questioned about on the day of judgment. We know about the status of the prayer. And so the fact that Allah mentions this worship of sacrificing alongside the worship of the prayer indicates the tremendous status and rank of this act of worship itself. And therefore it is impermissible to do it for others, for the sake of others besides Allah. وَالنُّسُكْ قَدْ تَسَاهَلَ فِيهِ كَثِيرٌ مِنَ النَّاسِ 
فصاروا يذبحون للجن طاعة للمشعوذين من أجل العلاج بزعمهم الشيخ الفوزان says this action of sacrificing many people have become very lax when it comes to this they've become very they've become in a state where they don't give it too much importance and they don't realize the level of severity regarding it such that he says many people these days you will see them that they slaughter for the jinn from their fear believing that if they slaughter something for the sake of the jinn and offer it as a sacrifice to them that the jinn will leave them alone or some of them they sacrifice something for the sake of these magicians and sorcerers believing that by offering this sacrifice for their sake they will then be able to cure them and give them other affairs they are seeking so the sheikh says the people have become very lax when it comes to this issue and they have not realized the severity of this affair it is a significant act of worship that you sacrifice in the name of Allah for the sake of Allah not for the sake of the jinn or the sorcerers and the magicians and then after that wa mahyaya يعني ما أحيا عليه في عمري من العبادة كله لله سبحانه وتعالى and say that my living meaning all of your life that you live upon worship it is all worship to Allah all of your life and all of the ibadah that you do it is for Allah وَمَمَاتِي and my death my dying then it is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and this is that you wish and you desire that you die upon Tawheed that you die upon Tawheed فَمَا أَمُوتُ عَلَيْهِ أَيْضًا لِلَّهِ that which I die upon it is for Allah that you die upon Tawheed that is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala فَمَعْنَ الْآيَةِ so the meaning of the ayah therefore is, I live upon Tawheed and I die upon Tawheed. Ahya ala Tawheed wa amut ala Tawheed. Thumma akkada thalika biqawlih la sharika lah. Then at the end of the ayah you see an emphasis being added on. An emphasis being added on La Sharika La that my prayer and my sacrificing and my living and my dying, all of them are for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for Allah the Lord of all that exists, and He has no partners. That extra part La Sharika La is an emphasis, a tawkeed upon the earlier statement in the ayah. And that's like when you say, La ilaha illallah, wahdahu la sharika lah. Wahdahu la sharika lah, that part is a tawkeed. It's an emphasis for la ilaha illallah. You are emphasizing that there is no deity worthy of worship in truth except Allah, that He has no partners. Wahdahu, He alone. La sharika lah, no partners to him. It is an emphasis of kalimatul tawheed.
So then, in the ayah, Allah tells the messenger to say to the people that my prayer and my sacrificing and my living and my dying are for Allah Rabbil Alameen. Allah, the Lord of all of that which exists. وَبِذَٰلِكَ أُمِرْتُ Then the ayah goes on to say, that is what I have been commanded with. Meaning I've been commanded to be upon, to heed with all of my actions. I've been commanded to do my worship, all of it, purely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And also, this indicates that ibadah is tawqifiyya once again, that you can only perform worship from that which you have been commanded with. What Allah has commanded you with, what is in the revelation, that's all you can do in terms of worship. You cannot make up any other worship outside of what is in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So that is the first ayah, very clear in its meaning, that the action of sacrificing, that's the shahid as they say, the nusuki, it is an act of worship, a high act of worship joined alongside the prayer, that must be done sincerely for the sake of Allah, seeking closeness to Allah, and not for others, not for the jinn, not for the uh, magicians and sorcerers, but for the sake of Allah alone, and not for the idols and the statues and the stars as the mushrikun used to do. Then the second ayah, وَقَوْلُهُ فَصَلِّ لِرَبِّكَ وَانْحَرْ And pray for your Lord and slaughter for your Lord. فَصَلِّ لِرَبِّكَ وَانْحَرْ Everybody knows that. إِنَّا أَعْطَيْنَاكَ الْكَوْثَرِ فَصَلِّ لِرَبِّكَ وَانْحَرْ So in this section where it mentions فَصَلِّ لِرَبِّكَ وَانْحَرْ After having mentioned the kawthar إِنَّا أَعْطَيْنَاكَ الْكَوْثَرِ فَصَلِّ لِرَبِّكَ وَانْحَرْ Indeed, we have given you الْكَوْثَرْ and what is Al-Kawthar? When Allah says in the ayah, إِنَّا أَعْطَيْنَاكَ الْكَوْثَرِ Indeed, we have given you Al-Kawthar. What is Al-Kawthar? What is the tafsir of that? A river in paradise. That's one meaning of it. That's the hold. What about another meaning for Al-Kawthar? All goodness. Al-Kawthar, it can mean Al-Khair Al-Kathir. In the books of Tafsir, they'll mention that the meaning of Al-Kawthar is Al-Khair Al-Kathir. Great amount of goodness. That's the general meaning. But specifically, Al-Kawthar is the river in paradise. So the river in paradise, that is a specific, or that is something specific to the messenger. So what is the hawd? 
ما الفرق بين الكوثر والحوض؟ What is the difference between الكوثر and الحوض؟ So the scholars have mentioned the Hawb, that lake, its water comes from Al-Kawthar. Al-Kawthar is in paradise, where is Al-Hawb? Al-Hawb, as they might say, the lake of the Prophet or the pond of the Prophet, where is that? So that is on the Day of Judgment in the uh, plains of the Day of Judgment prior to Paradise, and that is general. Al Hawd is general, it is mentioned all of the Prophets will have a Hawd, but the Kawthar specific only to the Prophet. So, in this ayah, when it mentions the Kawthar, and then after that, it mentions Fasalili Rabbika Walhaf. Meaning that we have given you this great amount of goodness. And we have given you that river in paradise. So be grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by making your prayer sincerely and specifically to Him. And making your slaughtering specifically and sincerely to Him. So pray only for your Lord, to your Lord sincerely. One har, meaning one har li rabbika. And sacrifice and slaughter only for your Lord. And some of the scholars have mentioned in the tafsir of this ayah that it could be in reference to Eid. Pray to your Lord and then sacrifice to your Lord. Pray to your Lord, the Eid prayer. And then after the Eid prayer, you go and do your sacrificing on the Eid al-Adha. So pray the prayer sincerely for Allah. And then go and do the sacrificing sincerely for Allah. Once again, that action has been associated and connected, joined on with the prayer, indicating it is an act of worship. And not just any act of worship, but a significant act of worship being mentioned alongside the prayer once again. So here the Shaykh says, "Ashahidu min al ayah inna salati wa nusuki, wa min al ayah fasalli li Rabbika wanhar, an Allah jalla wa ala qarana an nahr bissalah fi al ayatin." فدل على أنه عبادة لا يجوز صرفها لغير الله. In both of the ayat, the action of sacrificing has been mentioned alongside the prayer. We know absolutely that the prayer is a great act of worship, and if sacrificing has been mentioned alongside it, then that also is another great act of worship. And therefore, it cannot be done for others besides Allah. Just like the prayer cannot be done for others besides Allah. Then in the hadith, وَعَنْ عَلِيٍ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ قَالْ حَدَّثَنِي رَسُولُ اللَّهِ بِأَرْبَعِ كَلِمَاتِ Ali رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ says in this narration that 
the Prophet ﷺ mentioned to me or spoke to me with four words. And the kalimat here, it means four sentences. The arba'i jumal. As Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah mentioned on this hadith, the kalimat meaning jumal, the arba'i jumal, that the messenger spoke to me with four sentences. What were these four sentences that the Prophet ﷺ mentioned to Ali radiallahu anhu? The first one, لَعَنَ اللَّهُ مَنْ ذَبَحَ لِغَيْرِ Allah curses the one who sacrifices for other than Allah. لَعَنَ اللَّهُ مَنْ لَعَنَ وَالِدَيْهِ Allah curses the one who curses his parents. لَعَنَ اللَّهُ مَنْ آوَى مُحْدِثًا And it can be مُحْدَثًا uh, Meaning that Allah curses the one who gives um, uh, what do you call it? Shelter. Shelter. What do you say in English ones? Accommodates, that's close. The one who accommodates an innovator or an innovation. That Allah curses the one who accommodates an innovator or an innovation. And Allah curses the one who changes the boundaries of the land. Firstly, what is the meaning of Allah cursing someone? What is the la'na of Allah? The la'natullah is at-tard wal-ib'ad an rahmatillah. It is that Allah expels you and distances you from His mercy. If Allah expels and removes, distances someone away from His mercy, then certainly that person is cursed. Certainly that person is cursed. The one who has been distanced and removed away from the mercy of Allah. That's the meaning of the curse of Allah upon someone. That they have been removed and distanced from the mercy of Allah. So who are the people who are under that ruling? The first of them, which is the point of this chapter, that Allah curses the one who sacrifices for the sake of other than Allah. Even if it be that he sacrifices for the sake of a prophet or a messenger, or sacrifices for the sake of an angel, the one who sacrifices for other than Allah, then he is cursed by Allah. Meaning, تَقَرَّبَ بِالذَّبْحِ لِغَيْرِ اللَّهِ مِنَ الْأَصْنَامِ وَمِنَ الْأَضْرِحَةِ وَمِنَ الْأَشْجَارِ وَالْأَحْجَارِ وَالْجِنِّ وَغَيْرِ ذَلِكِ A person seeks closeness to others besides Allah via his sacrificing for them. So he seeks closeness to the idols or to the tombs and the shrines of the dead, or to the trees and the stones or the jinn, by presenting to them this sacrifice. فَكُلُّ مَنْ تَقَرَّبَ بِالذَّبْحِ إِلَىٰ غَيْرِ اللَّهِ فَإِنَّهُ قَدْ لَعَنَهُ اللَّهِ So anyone, everyone, 
who seeks closeness to any of these things besides Allah via slaughtering for them and presenting that sacrifice for them, then Allah's curse is upon that individual. And it should be known that certainly if the curse of Allah is upon a particular action a person does, then that action must be from the most severe of actions. It must be from the most severe and dangerous and evil of actions for Allah's curse to be upon that individual. The fact that the curse of Allah is upon that individual indicates the severity of that crime. فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ جَلَّ وَعَلَىٰ لَا يَلْعَنُ إِلَّا عَلَىٰ جَرِيمًا خَطِيرًا Because Allah would not curse someone unless it was a severe evil and a severe crime and sin that the person is committing. وَذَلِكَ نَعْمْ فَدَلَّ عَلَىٰ شِدَّةِ جَرِيمَةِ مَنْ ذَبَحَ لِغَيْرِ اللَّهِ أَيًّا كَانْ هذا الذبح كثيرا أو قليلا جليلا أو حقيرا. So whomsoever this is done for besides Allah, regardless of who or what it is, it is done besides Allah, seeking closeness besides Allah, then all of that is from this evil act and crime. وذلك and how could this occur? The Sheikh now explains. ذلك بأن يذكر على الذبيحة غير اسم الله. That the person may do the sacrifice and instead of saying بسم الله, he says بسمي and then the name of something else. In the name of this jinn, in the name of this dead person in the grave, in the name of this stone, this idol, whatever it is. Instead of بسم الله, he says, Bismi, and then mentions something else instead. That's one intention here. Or on top of that, that in his heart, his aqidah and his belief is that by forwarding this sacrifice, he will seek closeness via it to anyone besides Allah, whoever, whatever that thing may be besides Allah. Oh, yuridu bihadhihi al-zabiha daf'u sharri hadha al-mazbuhila. Or maybe he sacrifices something for other than Allah to this jinn, for example, believing that by doing so, it will remove the evil of that jinn from him. So he sacrifices for the sake of this jinn or for the sake of someone in the tomb, fearing this dead person in the tomb, believing if I sacrifice for him, then that dead person, that deceased individual will refrain from harming me further. فَيَذْبَحُ لِلْجِنِّ مِنْ أَجْلِ دَفْعِ شَرِّهِمْ وَخَوْفًا مِنْهُمْ So if a person sacrifices for the jinn to thinking that he will then be able to prevent their harm or purely from fear of them أَوْ يَذْبَحُ لِلْصَنَمِ مِنْ أَجْلِ أَنَّ الصَّنَمِ يَجْلِبُ لَهُ الْخَيْرِ 
or that a person sacrifices for the sake of an idol, believing that by doing so the idol will bring him goodness. كَمَا يَفْعَلُ بَعْضُ الْجُهَّالِ As some of the ignorant ones do, إِذَا تَأَخَّرَ الْمَطَرِ ذَهَبُوا بِثَوْرِ أَوَيْرِهِ مِنَ الْحَيْوَانِ وَذَبَحُوهُ فِي مَكَانُ عَيَّنِ The Shaykh says some of the ignorant people do this type of thing, that when there is a drought, when the rain has not come for a while, then they take a thor, not just a sheep, not just something minor, they take a proper ox, a bull, and they go and slaughter that, uh, believing that by slaughtering it at a particular place, then this will bring the rain for them. Or they go to a particular grave and slaughter that, believing then that the rain will come to them. And sometimes, like we said, istidraj, they might go and do that, and the next day, it rains. And that is not because of what they have done, but it is a further test and trial upon them, that they now believe, oh yes, it worked, and let's do it again. It becomes a greater test and trial upon them, not that it shows the success of what they did. So the one who does these things, the Shaykh says, فَمَنْ فَعَلَ ذَلِكَ فَهُوَ مُشْرِكْ وَمَلْعُونَ He is a mushrik and he is cursed. سَوَاءً تَلَفَّضَ وَقَالْ هَذِهِ الذَّبِيحَ لِلْقَبَرِ أَوْ لِلْبَدَوِي أَوْ لِسَيِّدِ الْحُسَيْنِ أَوْ لِفُلَانُ وَفُلَانُ أَوْ نَوَى بِقَلْبِهِ فَقَدْرِ Whether a person actually says in the name of Hussein, in the name of Badawi, in the name of Abdul Qadir al-Jailani, in the name of this, in the name of that, whether he actually says that when doing the sacrifice, or even if he doesn't say anything like that, but in his heart, that's what he believes he's doing. In his heart, that's his aqidah from doing this sacrifice, then both are the same. The ruling is the same, whether he utters the words in the name of such and such, or even if he doesn't utter those words, but in his belief, his aqidah, he's doing this whole thing for that reason, then they are both the same in that affair. That sacrifice is then haram. Haram, the ruling on that sacrifice, impermissible to eat haram. And that comes under the ayah in the Quran, وَمَا أُهِلَّ بِهِ لِغَيْرِ اللَّهِ that which has been sacrificed in the name of other than Allah. And that is whether you physically, literally say the name of other than Allah, or your intention in your heart is for other than Allah. The Shaykh gives a few examples, uh, Shaykh Al-Fawzan here, of some of the types of sacrificing people do, which could be considered as sacrificing for other than the sake of Allah. Some of the common ones, مَا يُذْبَحُ عِنْدَ أَوَّلِ نُزُولِ الْبَيْتِ خَوْفًا مِنَ الْجِنِّ When people move to a new house, and they fear the jinn, may have preoccupied that house previously. So upon arrival into that new house, upon settling into that new house, moving into it, 
then initially they do a sacrifice for the sake of the house and protection from the jinn or whatever may have been in there. So that would be considered from the impermissible forms of sacrificing. They are doing it as a means of believing this will bring them protection from the jinn or whatever might have been in this house or whatever evils may have been in this house previously in its history. Upon moving in, they sacrifice something, believing that will prevent the evils, and that is shirk, it is impermissible. As for when you move into a new house and you want to have, as they call it, the housewarming party. You want to invite a few people around. You want to show them your new house. You're happy you've got this new house. So you go and get a full sheep from the butcher. Full sheep, legs of lamb, everything. You bring all your friends and you have a big meal as a happiness for having got this new house and this blessing from Allah. Is that anything impermissible in that? That is not an issue. That is not being done in the same way as the first person. The first person who goes there in their aqidah, what evils may have been in this house previously, what jinn may have been in this house previously. We need to do a sacrificing initially, and then after that we can move in and settle in, because by doing this sacrifice and presenting it, then that will ward off any of the evils of the house. Haram. As for the brother who moves into a house and from his happiness he goes and orders a full sheep from the butcher and feeds his friends as a happiness, as a housewarming party as they call it. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. So then, فَالْحَاصِلْ The point here then is that all of these narrations so far indicate that the one who sacrifices for other than the sake of Allah, it is shirk. It is impermissible. The curse of Allah is upon that person. And then, just to briefly mention some of the other points in the narration which are not directly linked to the chapter. One of them is in the hadith that Allah's curse is also upon the ones who curse their parents. And that is something very well mentioned in the Quran and the Sunnah, the rights of the parents. And as we've just been saying before, we know that sacrificing is a tremendous act of worship because Allah mentions it alongside prayer. We know that respect of the parents is a tremendous act of worship because Allah mentions it alongside Himself. Allah mentions His rights and then He mentions the rights of the parents and that is in the Quran. وَعَبُدُوا اللَّهَ وَلَا تُشْرِكُوا بِهِ شَيْئًا وَبِالْوَالِدَيْنِ إِحْسَانًا Worship Allah and do not associate partners with Him. That is the right of Allah. And then, وَبِالْوَالِدَيْنِ إِحْسَانًا And with your parents, have the righteousness and goodness to them. That is the right of the parents. So the right of the parents is mentioned alongside the right of Allah or straight after the right of Allah. Therefore indicating what a station and a rank the obedience to the parents is. And that's why when you read the books of the major sins, there are different scholars who have written the book of major sins. Kitabul Kaba'ir, Al-Imam Al-Zahabi, Al-Imam Muhammad Abdul Wahab, Kitabul Kaba'ir, the book of major sins. In all of the books that the scholars wrote about major sins, you will always find disobedience to the 
Parents as one of the major sins, and not only that, you will find this sin of disobedience to the parents as one of the first major sins, as one of the most serious major sins. Then also in the narration it mentions, Allahu man awa muhdithan or muhdathan. If you say muhdithan, then it means the innovator. The ismul fa'il from ahdatha yuhdithu muhdith. That the curse of Allah be upon the one who accommodates and gives shelter and protects and defends and gives the help and the aid and the assistance to an innovator. Because an innovator has brought about into the religion that which is not from it. An innovator has done what the Prophet said in the hadith of Aisha, من أحدث في أمرنا هذا ما ليس منه فهو رد and in the other version من عمل عملا ليس عليه أمرنا فهو رد whomsoever brings about an action into our religion في أمرنا يعني في شرعنا into our religion that which is not from it then it will be رد meaning it will be turned back upon him رَدْ أَيْ مَرْدُودٌ عَلَى صَاحِبِهِ لَا يُقْبَلُ مِنْهُ It will be cast back upon the person who does it. It will not be accepted from them. And the one who does an action which is innovation, then similarly, it will be cast back upon them and not accepted from them. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ used to warn against innovation. Every week in the biggest gathering of the week, which was the gathering of Jumu'ah, every Jumu'ah prayer, the Prophet ﷺ used to warn against innovation when he would say, وَإِيَّاكُمْ وَمُحْدَثَاتِ الْأُمُورِ فَإِنَّ كُلَّ مُحْدَثَةٍ بِدْعَةٍ وَكُلَّ بِدْعَةٍ ضَلَالَةٍ وَكُلَّ ضَلَالَةٍ فِي النَّارِ And the variations of that. Be warned from all of the newly invented matters. All of those are innovations. Innovations are misguidances. Misguidances are in the hellfire. That's all mentioned, variations of that wording in the khutbah al-hajah. In every Jumu'ah prayer, warning them against innovation and bringing about anything into the religion which is not from it. And because as Al-Imam Malik mentioned, anyone who brings about an innovation into the religion, something new, which they claim is an act of worship, but it's not in the Qur'an and the Sunnah anywhere, then it is as though they are accusing the messenger of having failed to convey the religion in its entirety. It is as though they are accusing the messenger of having fallen short in conveying the religion to us. Because the fact that they believe they need to innovate into the religion must mean that they believe there are gaps in worship that they need to fill with these new worships they are making up. And if that's the case, then they are saying basically the messenger left these gaps that we need to fill in with these innovations. And that is an accusation against the messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the one who conveyed the religion. When he said to them in Hajj, have I conveyed... Have I conveyed? And they testified that he has conveyed. 
And in the Quran, Al-Yawma Akmaltu Lakum Deenakum, I have completed your religion for you today. So the one who brings about innovation, it is certainly something severe. So the narration mentions the one who uh, aids and supports an innovator or a muhdathan, an innovation. Supports and promotes and gives uh, uh, some type of shelter to an innovation, meaning spreads that and helps that and doesn't quash that and rebuke that, but allows it a platform then that is also from the affairs that are being warned against in this narration. فَمَنْ رَضِيَّ بِالْبِدْعَةِ وَلَمْ يُنْكِرْهَا وَهُوَ يَقْدِرْ فَقَدْ آوَاهَا An example of it, somebody who is pleased with an innovation and doesn't rebuke it, doesn't rebuke it, and he is capable of rebuking it, but doesn't, and he's content and happy and leaves it, then in that case, this would be considered from accommodating an innovation. And also, من رأى البدع وسكت ولم يتكلم في إنكارها والبيان للناس أنها بدعة فقد آواها. The one who sees an innovation but remains silent and doesn't speak and doesn't rebuke it with the ability to do so, then that individual is also accommodating the innovation. And that's why Sheikh Al-Fawzan mentions in other places, when you're giving da'wah, it is not simply a case of calling to the good. It's not simply a case of calling to the good, but also warning from the bad. Da'wah is in both of those. Ta'muruna bil wa tanhona anil munkar. That you enjoin the good and you forbid the evil together. And then also the last one mentioned here is Allahu man manara al-ard That Allah curses the one who changes the boundaries of the land. The boundaries of the land, there are different interpretations as to what this can mean. One of them is al-qawl al-murad al-ard al-marasim. وَمَعَنَا غَيَّرَهَا يَعْنِ قَدَّمَهَا وَأَخَّرَهَا عَنْ مَكَانِهَا وَفِي الْحَدِيثِ مَنِ اقْتَطَعَ شِبْرًا مِنَ الْأَرْضِ بِغَيْرِ حَقٍّ طُوِّقَهُ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ مِنْ سَبْعِ أَرَاضِينَ So one of them is the actual boundaries of land. So essentially you change them and end up stealing someone else's land, changing the physical boundaries of the land, and therefore you end up stealing someone's land or taking someone's land without right. The second is, Al-Qawl al-Thani, Anna al-Murad bi-manar al-Ard, A'alam al-Haram, Al-Ladhi yuhram, Aw yahrum, Qatlu Sayyidihi wa Tanfirihi, Wa yahrum qatlu Shajarihi wa Hashishi. Around Al-Masjid al-Nabawi, and around the Haram in Mecca, the Al-Masjid Al-Haram, around them there is a zone known as the Haram Zone. There is a zone around Al-Masjid Al-Nabawi which is known as the Haram Area, not the zone, they call it in English the area, the Haram Area. And Mecca as well, around Al-Masjid Al-Haram where the Kaaba is, that Masjid, then outside of it, there is a certain area known as the Haram area. 
And we're not just talking about the mosque and where the walls are. Well outside of that. In Medina, it goes well outside of the mosque up to where the mountain is. That area, these days they are labeled. You see the big sign, start of the haram area. And then you go to the other side of Medina, end of the haram area. There are big areas from one mountain to the other mountain of Medina. Huge area around the mosque known as the haram area. And same in Mecca, a large area known as the haram area. Those areas are specific areas. They are not just made up by anyone, they are in the revelation. In Bukhari, there are hadith telling you where the haram area of Medina is. They are specific areas. If a person attempts to change the markers of where that haram area starts and stops, they attempt to change those markers then that would be the potential meaning of Allah's curses upon the one who changes the boundaries of the land. Because those haram areas have certain rulings to them. For example, inside of the haram area, naturally growing trees, not man-made what they've planted themselves, naturally growing trees, you are not allowed to cut their leaves off and take their branches and cut them You're not allowed to in the haram area. Uh, Hunting is not allowed within the haram area. There are certain things not allowed in the haram area. That's why it's known as the haram. And that's why when you start the prayer, you call it takbiratul ihram. And when you go into your ihram for umrah hajj, it's known as ihram and you are muhrim. All of those words come from the word haram. Because... When you go into that area or you go into that state, it is now haram for you to do things that were previously halal. So when you go into the state of ihram, it's now haram for you to cut your nails or to cut your hair or to put on fragrance. These things are now haram for you. Whereas prior to going into ihram, prior to you becoming muhrim, they were halal. When you start the prayer, it's known as takbiratul ihram. Because when you go into the prayer and you start, now certain things are haram for you to do, which were halal before you started the prayer. Even things like talking, haram for you to talk now. You can't talk to people in the prayer. Have to focus quietly. You can only say the words of the prayer. So takbiratul ihram. So here, the one who changes the boundaries of the haram area, uh, then that could be considered uh, what is intended by this, the curse of Allah upon the one who changes the boundaries. So then it may, and uh, he says, أَخَذَ لُقْتَتِهِ Another example, in the haram area, lost property can never be taken, meaning you can never keep it. If you find lost property here now, Outside, you go into the car park and you see a laptop, thousand pound laptop, mashallah, you're sitting on the floor in the car park there. So what are you going to do? You can take that laptop and Islamically you have to announce it and search for the owner for how long? For one year. For one year, you have to do what you can do to find the owner. Make announcements. These days with social media and all these things, take the means that are there to try to find the owner. Speak to all the people coming in and out of the mosque. Speak to all the neighbors. 
announce it to everybody for a year with the general descriptions of the laptop to try and find the owner. You don't tell them the details of it. You just say there was a laptop that was found in the car park. Uh, a laptop found in the car park with a particular bag with it. Somebody may come along and say, yes, I lost it. I remember just there in Cheetah Mill in that area. I was going past Dudley Road. I lost it. So then you say to them, what color was it? If he says to you black, but the one you found was silver, then you know it's not his. That's why when you look for the owner, you don't give the full description out. If you give the full description out, then mashallah, every brother will come here and say, it's mine. They say, absolutely, it was the Dell, the silver one, that was mine. You don't give the full description out. You give the general description out, and then when the person comes to claim it, you tell them, give me the full description, then what was it? If they can give you the precise, exact description. They say, and there was a little crack in the corner. You look, crack in the corner, everything. And you know it says, but in the haram area, the point was, if you find something lost there, lost property, you must announce it for how long? Forever. You're never allowed to keep it. You find a laptop there, you have to announce it forever. Obviously, these days you have the lost property office anyway. You give it there and it remains. And it is announced forever. You can never assume it to be yours. Whereas here, for a year, you do everything you can do. And nobody claims it. Then mashallah, take it home, it's all yours. So there are differences for the haram area. And that's one of the points being mentioned here then. Not the one who changes the boundaries of that area. The third point about changing the boundaries of the land could be in relation to the signposts of the land. The signposts of the land. So on the motorways now you see the signs. Arrow this way, come off the slip road for Berry. Go this way for Leeds. Go this way for Liverpool. All the signs are there. If somebody came one day and swapped them all around, and now all of a sudden you're driving in the wrong direction to go to the city you don't even want, so now that's changing the boundaries of the land by changing the signposts of the land of where things are and where to go. So anyway, all of those are given as explanations. The one who does that is also cursed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's where we'll have to leave it then. The final narration will do it next time. The hadith about the man who sacrificed a fly for other than the sake of Allah. We'll come to that hadith next week then insha'Allah ta'ala. We'll stop there for today. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Anything to add? You're going to have to be quick. We have barely two or three minutes today. There's another class today. If, if someone have a tiny, tiny bit keeper in their heart, they cannot enter in Jannah. But if, <laughs> how can we protect our heart from keeper? How many... I'm sure this is the, the 56th <laughs> time you've asked me this question. <laughs> <laughs> no, how, how we can protect, protect, protect our heart? A person, how can he protect his heart from keeper, from arrogance, from haughtiness, from, you know, being impressed with yourself? All of that, the asal of it comes from perfecting and strengthening your sincerity to Allah. How are you going to perfect and strengthen your sincerity to Allah? As the Salaf said, 
Sufyan Al-Thawri ibn Uyayna, he said, I wasn't too sure about my sincerity, but once I started seeking knowledge, the more you start to see the ayat of Allah and what Allah tells you in the Quran, the more you see of the sunnah, what the messenger mentions there, the more you read and the more you read about the punishments and the more you read about the rewards, then all of that strengthens your intention. So they said, I think Ibn Uyayna or Al-Thawri, that my intention wasn't perfect, but once I started seeking knowledge, that corrected my intention. The more and more I sought of knowledge, the more my intention was corrected. So with knowledge and practice, then inshallah ta'ala a person becomes stronger with his iman and he can dispel arrogance and kibber and those affairs. Uh, is it allowed to attend lessons of the people of misguidance to study all sahih books and sahih scholars? Uh, it is not permissible to do that. Because as the Salaf they said, This knowledge that you are seeking of the Sahih books and the Sahih scholars, then that is knowledge not about geography or maths or science. It is knowledge about your religion. Knowledge about what will determine who goes to paradise or hell. So you don't want to seek that knowledge except from the absolute correct and upright sources. And the easiest example, some of the, uh, the teachers they mentioned, some of the scholars, if you, in a worldly matter, in a worldly matter, would you go to someone who has errors and mistakes, like fixing your car? The people, they say to you, don't go to this mechanic. He's okay, he's good, but he makes mistakes on this and he makes mistakes and I took my car, I did this wrong and that wrong. Would you go to him? Absolutely not. In worldly matters, you would not go to a mechanic where the people tell you he has some mistakes though. He's good, he can do this job, he can do that job, but he has been known to make mistakes here and there and there. Then you won't go to him. You're not going to go and give your money to a mechanic where there's a potential of him not knowing what to do and making a mistake. You would go to the mechanic that everybody recommends is good and doesn't make mistakes. If that's what you do in your worldly matters, then how can it be that in your religious matters you don't care? In your religious matters they tell you, but this person, he may be teaching Bukhari, he may be quoting and teaching the book of Sheikh Al-Albani, but the man himself has been refuted by the scholars and he has got errors here and there. But now you're going to say, no, it's okay, I'm going to go to him. Then why wouldn't you go to the mechanic and give him your 200 pounds? Scared of your money being lost because your car might not be fixed, but you're not scared of your heart being broken, your heart being misguided by an individual who has mistakes and errors. Then certainly if you want to learn the truth, go to the people of truth to learn it. Not go to the people with errors and mistakes and misguidance to learn it. We're going to have to conclude today because uh, there is another class. Our brother Abdul Hakim Mitchell is here. And so for those who are able to stay, there will be another class in... What is it, the topic? So there's a lecture anyway. There's going to be a class now with uh, Ustad Abdul Hakim Mitchell. For whoever can stay for that one, we'll have to conclude on that for now then. We'll finish off the chapter next week, inshallah. Ah, oh, in fact, no, wait, I've just, uh, ignore everything I said. <laughs> I won't normally say that, but ignore everything I just said. There is no lecture, now you can go home. <laughs>